agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? Well, as, as some listeners know, I'm uh, we're still recovering from a uh, grid attack uh, by either uh, the Putin forces. Uh, or installation of uh, NSA um, listening devices uh, that uh, knocked out power here for like most of the day yesterday. So that's why we're we're on late, in case people are wondering. Yes, but, we are, we are a day late. I'm, I'm yeah. recovered. Yes, and back. Yeah, <laughs> we are set to go. So yeah, and we we have as usual a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the uh, Pelosi attack and the response to that. A big Supreme Court affirmative action case. Uh, uh, Trump's tax returns. It's not gone away, but maybe it will. And uh, yes, kind of in, in honor of Trey, in a way, uh, you. Elon Musk's uh, purchase of Twitter and all the fallout from that, and maybe some final thoughts on the midterms. That's a lot. I don't know if we're going to get to all of it, but we will get to as much of it as we possibly can in just one second. All right, Jay, so we'll start off with that assault on Paul Pelosi, of course, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi's assailant, 42-year-old David DePapa. I guess I'd call him a right-wing conspiracy theorist, told police that he was going to hold Speaker Pelosi hostage, interrogate her, and break her kneecaps if she lied to him, which he said he was certain she would do. And the pap said he wanted to break her kneecaps so that she'd have to be wheeled into Congress in a wheelchair as a message to other members that there are consequences to actions. And when the pap broke in and learned that Speaker Pelosi wasn't at home, he decided to wait for her with Pelosi, Paul Pelosi as her hostage. And thankfully, he was able to make a 911 call from a bathroom. And then when police arrived, Pat began hitting Pelosi with a hammer, fracturing his skull. And, you know, in one sense, this is a straightforward, I think, and, and tragic story. You have a mentally unstable person kind of sucked into the vortex of uh, kind of far extremist hatred and, and he acted out. Um, but, but to me, it, it's the responses to this horrific event that maybe in a way make it even more disturbing because almost immediately a number of uh, entirely unfounded theories sprang up with you know, the one gaining the most traction, it seems, being that the pap was a male prostitute who Pelosi invited into his home and after some sort of a drunken dispute attacked him. And, you know, this wasn't just some crazy nuts on, on, you know, on one side of things on the right, but it was promoted in part, at least by Elon Musk and Donald Trump. And, and, you know, there were also those who felt the attack was some sort of a laughing matter. And Donald Trump Jr. posted an image of a hammer and a pair of underwear with the caption, got my Paul Pelosi Halloween costume ready. And on the campaign trail, several Republican candidates were, you know, similarly making light of uh, the attack. And so, I, Jay, I, I mean, I know you think this is a, a horrible, that the attack was a horrible thing, but I, I wanted to get your take on the response from Musk, uh, Trump, and, you know, a number of other fairly prominent uh, co commentators on the right. Well, no, I, I don't think we should uh, laugh anytime someone's 
assaulted, uh, uh, in this case, you know, dangerously so, right? I mean, essentially an attempted murder assault with, with what uh, could be a deadly weapon. So, um, no, I mean, it's, it's certainly um, bad taste, bad ethics, sort of to make fun of this sort of thing. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't know, you know, what else to say on that? I mean, it, it is what it is. And I think if, um, you know, the, if there was, if there's evidence, right, that this is something other than um, uh, what it, what it seems to be, which is a, a crazy guy uh, showing up um, uh, at, at the, the Pelosi's residence, um, then obviously, okay, let's, let's hear that evidence. But uh, I, you know, in absence of that, it, it's improper to just to speculate and make stuff up. So, um, you know, shame on them for, for doing so. And, um, it, it, but it, it seems to me that this sort of thing has just become almost normalized in a way that even, you know, five years ago or so, five, six, ten years ago, certainly it wasn't. And that, to me, is the truly disturbing thing. You would think that everyone from any sector except for the total lunatic fringe could come out and say, this is a horrible thing. And, you know, we're, we have we're beating political... people with hammers. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but but yet. Yet there are people, plenty of people, like I said, and not just, you know, not just sort of lunatic fringe people, but, you know, Donald Trump, who's going to be running for president, announcing his campaign in a few weeks, said, has no problem saying, well, you know, I hear it was a breakout as opposed to a break in. And I wonder what's going on there. And and that to me, it, it, it makes me almost physically ill. Well, I, I hope you feel better, but I'm not sure what else. I mean, I would say, I mean, lunatic fringe and, and uh, Donald Trump running for president, that's not, the two aren't mutually exclusive, right? Um, so, no, and I, I think there's, I think there's, there can be some fair criticism on uh, when there is this kind of story of what does the media tell us and, and, and when and so forth. Um, and I think there are some, some fair questions because the story itself is just, is weird, right? Um, and I think there was there was some spin, and I'm going to assign some some blame to the the Biden administration that, that took this on as well. Listen, this is part of some again right wing conspiracy. Um, uh, you know that, that this is sort of January sixth part two or something like that. When I think all the evidence points to this is a guy who is just plain nuts. Um, he wasn't a, a particular. I mean, he he dabbled in right wing conspiracies, but he certainly dabbled in left wing conspiracies. Uh, and he also had a, an invisible fairy friend um, who would say things to him and sometimes appeared as a bird. Um, uh, he lived with a you know prominent nude, prominent nudist activist, and uh, uh, during that time, uh, uh, proudly posted a Black Lives Matter and a uh, um, you know trans rights flag and all that. So I, I, I mean, my sense is this: this guy is not in and of himself particularly ideological. He's he's just a nut now. I think you can make the fair argument that the more noise that's pumped out there uh, about conspiracies, so forth, uh, you know, these people are doing terrible things or taking your right to vote I'll, I'll, on, on both sides. Um, it gives something for a, a nut to grab onto. Um, but I, I don't, I don't see it as a, uh, um, you know, that this guy was necessarily pushed by, by one by one narrative, I think he's he's just crazy. It's a lot like the the, the Gabby Gifford shooter, right? Uh, right, who again was just a, a seriously mentally ill person. So, 
Yeah, um, but do you agree with me with the the sort of normalizing of the? I mean, it seems it seems to me that now everything is. There used to be a time when there were certain things that were at least considered to be somewhat off limits. Is that you do not yeah. use an yeah. assault on somebody in in this sort of way, and you say, oh well, there's an, there's an opportunity here. Yeah. And, no, I think you're right there. And, yeah. And there's a lot more of that definitely than, than there was in the past. Yeah. So I, I don't know what more there is to say about that, but it's like I said, it, 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 when I think about it, it makes me just about physically ill and, and not just the attack, but the fact that we're seeing more and more prominent people feel like it's perfectly okay to, to spread ridiculous, uh, un- completely unfounded conspiracies uh, about this sort of thing in, in service of their own, uh, I don't know, notoriety power or something like that. It just makes me makes me not quite despair, but certainly get one step closer to despairing for uh, the, the fate of democracy in America. And we'll, we'll talk maybe more about that later. And I would, I would imagine you're not quite where I'm at on that. I'm not, I'm not despairing. Like I said, I, I look at it and say that those kind of comments, that kind of reaction uh, is inappropriate and uh, in bad taste uh, and, and ought to be judged. So, right. I mean, people who, who, you know, if you're in politics uh, and or the media and you're there to create a favorable impression, I think that ought to create a disfavorable impression. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to our uh, next thing we want to talk about, and that is uh, a major Supreme Court case. This week, they heard oral arguments in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, in which the court is being asked to rule that institutions of higher education can't use race as a factor in admissions. And that's something the court held was permissible in their 2003 ruling in uh, Greta versus uh, Bollinger. And in that decision was a five to four decision authored by Justice O'Connor. The court held that the Equal Protection Clause did not prohibit the University of Michigan's law school from considering race in admissions in, if it was done in a matter that was narrowly tailored and designed to further a compelling state interest in the educational benefits of a diverse student body. But it's important to note, I think, that in the opinion O'Connor wrote, the court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. Now, it's been 19 years since that decision, and based on the oral arguments from this last week, I'd say that the current court is going to end up kind of moving that timeline up by, well, six years uh, in this case. And I should also mention there are actually two legal questions here. The first, that's a constitutional one I mentioned, but there's also this claim that Harvard is violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits institutions that receive federal funds from discriminating based on race. And Students for Fair Admissions have cited data that they they allege demonstrates that Asian American applicants are less likely to be admitted than uh, similarly qualified white, black, or Hispanic applicants, though I should also point out that this argument was rejected in lower courts. And if you listen to the questions from the court's six conservatives in last week's argument, they focused on things like exactly what academic benefits stem from diversity how universities determine when they have a sufficiently diverse student body to reap those diversity benefits and what, if any, logical endpoint there is for racial preferences in college admissions. And the conservative justices also suggested that schools 
could achieve student body diversity by means other than racial preferences and admissions by things like uh, low-income outreach programs and financial aid. Now, the court's three liberals pushed back on this. They emphasized that race is only one of many factors considered in admissions, and they made a case for the importance of diversity in higher education as sort of a pipeline to diversity in leadership positions in society in general. So, Jay, I thought the place we could maybe start is with that precedent from 2003. Do you think the court got it right back then before we move up to 2022? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, well, this is an easy one for you then, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's why I wanted yeah. to start there, right? So I guess maybe you could talk a little bit about that because uh, this is the constitutional issue, right? The Equal Protection yeah. Clause. So uh, talk about why you think that uh, the five justices and the majority there got it wrong in uh, Greta so, versus Bollinger. Yeah, so going back to uh, Greta, um, Greta floated a new theory. It used to be affirmative action cases going back from like the Abaki era uh, was the sense that, listen, um, racial preferences uh, could be justified. Uh, there would be a, um, uh, a significant um, uh, compelling interest uh, in allowing a racial preference uh, because of, of past discrimination, that this is this is to remedy uh, prior discrimination by that institution that is is being sued, um, and that was sort of the law for quite a while. And what happened was, of course, that at this point we're, we're sort of past that. And it's hard to say that um, some of the institutions, you know, are currently discriminating or haven't been discriminated. It's it's one thing if you're talking about it's it's the 1970s and and look, their policies in the 1950s uh, were discriminatory. Um, but I, I don't think that's the case, and I think that it would be really – you'd be really, really hard-pressed to make an argument that there is any college or university anywhere uh, in the country uh, or in the Western world, for that matter, um, that, ha that is, is in any way discriminating against minorities. Uh, well, I should, I should take that back because that's sort of discriminated against particular minorities, right, racial uh, – uh, let, let me, yeah, let, let, let me yeah. back up just a second on that. So when you talk about uh, remedying past discrimination, now I think there are a couple of ways that people might look at that as like limiting or remedying past discrimination specifically in university admissions. And then there's yes. also the broader argument that, well, it's designed to remedy past discrimination more generally in terms of economic and educational opportunities prior to university admission, because those things, of course, have a direct or can have a direct relationship to uh, the ability to be able to compete equally on things like standardized tests or other measures that are used by by institutions. Right. Sure. Sure. But, but the second theory is is the newer one. Right. But, but, it, but I imagine you're yeah, not. That's not. Yeah. Yeah, you're, I'm saying you're not disputing that things like uh, if if there is, in fact, and this is another point, but if there is, in fact, systemic, say, economic and educational discrimination in, you know, K through 12 uh, education, then that would have an impact on, uh, say, a, a black student, a black applicant's ability to compete. And you could make a sure. case that that being the case, then then the state may have a compelling interest in admission standards that work to remedy that. I, I, I could I could get there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd have to have a couple things. One, that that discrimination is racial in nature and not socioeconomic. 
And then that sort of leads to the second question, is this the narrowly tailored remedy? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I think those, those are my, my two, two questions, right? And I think this, this case, when I said discriminates against minorities, that's sort of exactly what, um, uh, let, let's put it this way, the universities uh, would not discriminate against what are typically viewed as disfavored minorities, if you follow me. Yeah, um, explain a little socioeconomically. more. Socioeconomically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, this, this is exactly the argument, right? Um, is they will say, listen, black students are not doing as well uh, on standardized tests. Uh, they may have more challenges in K through 12 due to uh, whatever school system they're in. Um, therefore, we are going to give them, um, uh, take their race into account. At the same time, we're sort of taking can account uh, the race of Asian students who are do out, uh, outperform on standardized tests. Now, I think that's that's sort of the problem is is these colleges are picking which races uh, they would like to see uh, uh, you know give give preference to, uh, and that's that's a a, a right. uh, that, so, that's that's gotcha. where the constitutional so, problem. So you're is. saying and, that and yeah. you, you got sort of the same the same uh, issue. Back in sort of the 30s, 40s, 50s, were there limits on Jewish applicants? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm I'm going to you know say stuff that will probably get me in trouble here, but um, th- there are uh, if you look at at the you know sort of the cultural phenomenon of of a lot of Asian families and you know sort of the tiger mom phenomenon, education is so incredibly stressed, right? It's so pushed. It's it's such a part of that culture. Uh, and I, I shouldn't say that culture because Asian is very broad and, and encompasses people from from half the world, right? Um, but when you when you think of of Asian American immigrants, um, the idea of of working hard, of becoming uh, uh, you know getting into a professional school, of Ivy League school, and and further on after that, um, that is so ingrained. Um, and this is, I have, I have some very good, some of my best friends are Asian, Mike. Um, some very good <laughs> Just, friends, though, who come I'm leaving from that, that one alone, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, who come from that, no, who come from that world, though, that, that you know, growing up, the expectation from kindergarten on was, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to go to a big, uh, you know, uh, important uh, school, and you will be a, a doctor. Um, and and they, they did. They, uh, so, I mean, it, it's... So then, the argument to me, that, to me yeah. that's that's the and that's that's sort of the same the same argument again that was uh, back in the '30s '40s with with uh, Jewish students again Jewish American immigrants there was this tremendous uh, push on education and and you know climbing up through education uh, and and therefore you had a whole lot of um, Jewish applicants with outstanding academic records uh, and and so good for them yeah but but you had a yeah system that that wanted to limit yeah so to be clear we're what we're what we're talking about here is is actually a like you said the the, the backy argument where preferences are okay to remedy past discrimination and you're saying that well even if we accept that and i do and it sounds like you're willing to accept that you're saying yeah. that well we need to make a distinction between discrimination that is avowedly and clearly racial like for instance in the you know, for a long long time where institutions had well pretty understood quotas the number of jewish students they would they would right. admit or black students it was right. the quota was zero students. exactly <laughs> right. as opposed to there being uh, uh 
there being an effect on certain racial groups, but that's actually more socioeconomic than racial. Yes. Okay. Now, we move forward, though, and that's not the argument, though, in, uh, in Grutter in 2003. No, the argument the, the shifts. Argu- the argument in Grutter then changes to say, listen, it's not the issue that you are depriving um, uh, these students of, of admission or you're violating their rights. But you know what? You're harming everyone's rights to a diverse uh, student body and the benefits that flow from that. Right. Um, and my response would be, look, I think there there certainly are benefits to a diverse student student body, um, but do you do those benefits raise to the clear and compelling um, uh, level that you, that you need to find to say, listen, we're going to essentially say this is an exception to the Fourteenth Amendment um, because we want to have a diverse student body, and and that's where I come down as a as a, a hard no. Uh, and well, secondly, not not just as clear and compelling, but is this manner that we're using to get a diverse student body the least restrictive means? Well, let me kind of uh, focus on that a little bit then, because so would you see there being any uh, circumstance under which the uh, the institution or the uh, the state's interest in diversity is compelling enough to be able to allow for, in effect, an exception to the uh, Equal Protection Clause? Is I mean, in any instance, because, of course, if, if the answer to that is yeah. no, then we can you know, kind of move on. But Keep moving. Um, <laughs> no, I, look, I, look, could I come up with a hypothetical where you have, uh, you know, some school that is historically and, and nearly 100 percent white or or something like that? I suppose. Uh, do any of those exist in the real world? I, I sort of doubt it. OK. So then um, it, it's you a, know, so I'm, gotcha. not, I'm not saying it's it's impossible, but I think finding that that case uh, is would sort of be a needle in a haystack. Okay, so it's it's a question then of not so much is there a is there a compelling interest? Maybe it's more a question of and this is what some of the I think conservative justices sort of focused on in their questions is at what point have you uh, at what point do you know that you've reaped you have enough diversity to reap those benefits without having to essentially have a carve out for the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Is that is that what yeah, you're saying? Exactly. And that's part of it. Well, the other thing, you know, um, something that, that Justice Roberts said, which is one of these going to be great quotes for, for all of history, I think. So was the discussion of, listen, a college can have preferences to say, listen, our, our orchestra needs more oboe players. So we are going to uh, perhaps relax academic standards or, or uh, standardized test scores for someone who also plays the oboe because, hey, we need oboe players. And and look, I think that's sort of the yeah, that's the school has an interest in getting oboe players and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's no compelling interest. Uh, right. That that says and, and is, is then what Roberts followed up with is and we didn't fight a civil war over oboe players. And thank God. Right. Yeah. Race is something different. And it's set out in the Constitution. That right. That's one of the reasons. Yeah. So I think that's OK. Now, and I, I should point out if, for. Uh, Comparative purposes, uh, Harvard reports that the racial makeup of its class of 20, 2026, 40.6% white, 27.9% Asian American, 15.2% African American, 12.6% Hispanic or Latino, 2.9% Native American, and 0.8% Native Hawaiian. So, I mean, that's that is obviously significantly more diverse than the U.S. population in general. And I think I can understand how somebody looking at that would saying, well, at what point, you know, have you 
have you gotten to those benefits? Yeah. And I would think when you have a uh, 40 points and actually I should point out in their, in their stats that they post, Harvard actually doesn't say the percentage of white. you kind of have to figure that out by subtraction from everything else or doing math or, you know, something like that. But I, I, I don't know, but there, there it is. But, but, you know, that's a lot more diverse than say Baldwin Wallace university where, you know, you and I went to school at 77.8% white or, you know, NKU where I teach now 80.3% white. So, so I, I feel like Harvard might not be the greatest, you know, test case on this. If you're making that yeah. argument, because Harvard is so incredibly racially diverse, as opposed to you know some other institutions. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. But, and I think it's 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 tough to it's tough to get to a uh, to to say that that you need that that yeah if if you're um, more diverse than the population of the country generally. Um, and I think, look, I think there's, there's an interest. I think there is an interest in having a student body that may be more diverse than the, uh, the, the country in general. Um, particularly in, if you're in a region, right. That, that is, is less uh, diverse and you're less likely to meet different kinds of people. I, I think that's all great. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I think you, when you, when you start saying that, Aha, we're still not diverse enough. And um, the questions that the justice has asked, well, when at what point do you get diverse enough? And I, the answer was sort of, well, um, never. We're going to keep doing this and, and you know, we'll, we'll let you know. Yeah, that, that's um, I mean, I think it's particularly problematic when we're talking about, again, a carve out for, uh, uh, you know, part of the Constitution. It's like, well, we need some we need some sort of standards. And and I would be will it reasonable people. I would expect to disagree as to what those standards are and how they're measured. But to just say, well, we don't know, but we're just going to assume we can just keep on keep on sort of having this carve out of, of for the 14th Amendment as long as we feel we need it. That's that's a little too uh, nebulous for me. Uh, but that's so that's the constitutional issue. I, and I pointed out there's there's a second issue here. And I think it's a little more problematic. And that is Title Six. And Title Six reads in part, no person in the United States shall on the ground of race, color or national origin be excluded from participation in and be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Now, to me, this is an easy one. Uh, uh, Harvard and uh, North Carolina, they're the other uh, uh, respondent in this. They are clearly discriminating based on race because that's, I think, sort of an inevitable consequence of counting race as a plus factor, right? Um, yeah. Now, I don't agree with that language. I would have written Title VI differently, but it's hard for me to see how you can argue that Harvard is not in violation of that. Uh, I I don't know maybe um uh, what do you what do you think about that? Well, the the argument sort of that that gets floated is sort of this like greater good argument, right? That well, yeah, we are discriminating again uh, by race, but that's only so that we can end discrimination. Yeah, but the, the right? problem, of course, and, the and problem is that Roberts, the who, yeah. said, who said years ago, and I think it, it was I think it was in his dissent in in Greta, um, yeah, the best way to end racial discrimination is to stop discriminating by race. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, yeah, but 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 I mean, it, it seems like I said, I I think that there there are, it's problematic how Title VI is written, but as written, it doesn't say uh, there's not an appendix uh, unless, of course, you're doing this for the greater good. Unless you're doing it for a good yeah. reason, yeah. You no, know, we yeah. talk about this. We've talked about this so many times in, in the show, where uh, Justice Scalia writes said that he wished he had a stamp that said "dumb but constitutional." 
And so I think this was ill-advised because it is too broad and it doesn't allow for institutions to do. But just reading the pretty straightforward letter of the law here, it's hard for me to argue that Harvard is not violating Title VI. Uh, and so, I mean, to me, the answer would be to uh, change that legislation to allow for that sort of thing. But I, I don't think you get to just say, well, you know, yeah, we're violating it, but uh, come on, guys, that that just doesn't, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I agree with you 100%. So um, I would say, you know, who else would agree with you, Mike? Uh, would agree with both of us. Justice Thomas. And that is, uh, well, <laughs> Justice Thomas, yeah. He usually, he usually agrees with me. <laughs> but um, uh, someone who, uh, well, he, he's not with us now, but uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan, um, who was known as the great dissenter in uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And and Harlan, this is, I, I sort of got, um, about a year or so ago, uh, got interested in Harlan because of, of some of the stuff that's going on and the, the woke wokeness, right? And Harlan was the guy who dissented in, in Plessy. And one of the things he said was, and Plessy, just for to, to back up, right, was the separate Separate equal equal. case. Yeah. It said, listening, train cars, there were, there were black compartments and, and white compartments. Uh, and uh, uh, the majority of the court, everyone except Harlan, said, yeah, that's okay, because uh, you can still discriminate. It doesn't violate the Fourth, 14th Amendment as long as it's separate but equal. And, of course, that's the, the phrase and the ideology that carried on, uh, uh, you know, that sort of justified Jim Crow and, and uh, carried on through uh, up until Brown versus the board. But what Harlan said is there's no the, – the government should have no business knowing the race of the person they're dealing with. And, and if you look back and think about what a, a shocking statement that is then, and it is now, um, that he very much advocated for a truly colorblind um, society. Uh, and it's also, there's, there's, some, there's some funny ironies, because in Harlan's dissent, he, he uses phrases from, from the time. Um, um, uh, sort of <laughs> saying, look, they, uh, you know, hey, they even let Chinamen sit in uh, uh, <laughs> the white section. Um, those are those, his, his words, not mine. Um, but, uh, and, and you know, these, these were people who in that case were in that were not American citizens, um, uh, uh, due to the, uh, uh, the Chinese exclusion act, um, which again, you know, there's you know something like back in the, back in the day, um, they didn't, they didn't come up with, uh, cute acronyms, um, uh, to sort of tell you what a a, uh, a piece of legislation was about, they called it the Chinese exclusion. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. No question. Like, what what are we doing here? Um, um, but anyway, but, but I think let me, before you before you move on, I but I think you would acknowledge that you certainly can say, well, it's problematic to say, well, we should just be a colorblind society when when if there is in fact. Uh, effects from long-standing systemic discrimination where somebody's basically starting well ahead and you say, well, yeah, we're, we're not going to discriminate anymore, but yeah, it's, it's too bad that you're starting 20 yards behind, say, this other group, but we're going to run a fair race. And so everyone just starts where they're at. I mean, you recognize, I, I, would, I would think, that that is a legitimate argument and a legitimate concern, or maybe not. Sure, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a legitimate argument, but something else to consider uh, about Harlan's background. His family. Um, uh, was from Kentucky and had owned slaves. He had a half brother 
who was a prior, a, a freed slave. And he grew up, he was adopted by the family. It's, it's a crazy story um, uh, that, that Justice Harlan had this, this older brother who essentially lived in the house, um, uh, was, was black, uh, and was about 15 years or so older than, than he was and was really sort of like a, a mentor uncle figure almost more than more than just an older brother and had a profound impact on his life. And, and that brother actually moved across the river then to Cincinnati and became a, a prominent politician in Cincinnati and Ohio. Um, uh, and uh, but anyway, th- again, so what I'm saying, this is this is someone who who literally grew up with slavery and said, you know, no, the best way to do it is just let's ignore race altogether. And, and let people start from scratch. Now that that may be naive. I think you can make the argument that that's naive. Um, uh, but but I just you know you think about what what the world would have would have looked like um, if at some point you you make that break. If we had made that break back at Plessy um, and just said no, every you know we're we're not doing any sort of of uh, looking at race. Uh, would we be in a better situation than we are now? Yeah, I, I, I understand that argument. I, I have big problems with it just because for the reasons that I talked about. In a way, it really kind of reminds me of uh, the sort of modern uh, climate argument where you have, you know, developed, uh, developed countries saying like, well, you know, everyone needs to cut their emissions. And so India, too bad. You know, we we burned a bunch of the coal to yeah. get to the point where we're at. And he's like, well, wait a second. Uh, how is this fair? And they're right. You know, and so that's oftentimes also kind of a racial thing is indirectly. But so I think that's that's the problem with that sort of colorblind argument is it ignores or it can ignore the fact that there still are very big disparities that are that are at least in part the result of generations or even hundreds of years of systemic discrimination. And we just can't wish that away. But you you would agree with me though that the farther we get from those historic disparities, the more difficult it is to justify um, a racial preference or viewing anything through the lens. I, I of think race, the, right? the I think it is always. I wouldn't say I would say other things being equal. Yes, I would say it is always incumbent upon the person arguing for an exception to any equal treatment based on race to justify their case and to demonstrate that they have a compelling interest and it's being and that interest is being uh, achieved in the in the narrowest possible way. So, yeah. Uh, And so, yeah, I I would agree with that. No, I kind of along the same lines. It seems to me that I would be I would definitely be in favor of Title six being amended to allow for some sort of limited uh, a limited ability to. have admissions at least in part based on diversity with with certain benchmarks i guess set in place but also even more than that i would love just totally i would love a requirement that institutions that get federal funding of higher education not discriminate based on whether the applicant had a close relative attend or whether they donated to the school. And I mean, Harvard sure. and all those other yeah. places would just be, I mean, cause that's, if you take a look at the big issues in, in 
there's so many of those legacy and oh they you know not necessarily donated a gym but you know i mean buying your way in and to me that in a way is even more of a of a problem in certain respects and uh, not that that's going to happen because so many of the people making these laws are ivy league graduates whose oxes would be gored from that you know well, there's a wonderful irony there too, right? Uh, if the one, if on the one hand, and I can, uh, you know, if you really point out to how this how this works, right? On the one hand, um, you were saying, well, uh, I'm I'm all for um, we're fine with allowing uh, children of alumni or people who make significant donations uh, preference in um, who all happen to be white, or I shouldn't say all, but most many happen to be yeah. white. Um, uh, just given the historic, historic nature. Uh, deserve a leg up in admissions, uh, but uh, as also do um, uh, minorities, which had been discriminated against because of their past discrimination, um, because so society yeah. was was backward fifty seventy years ago, and and it, I mean it's really it's the exact same thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's it's just the the other side of that that yeah. coin, yeah, yeah. Um, but that again, that's the sort of thing where you know the the uh, Ivy League elite ruling class would never allow that because that would just be scandalous. Right. What do you mean, my kid can't get in? Doesn't have a leg up getting into Harvard because you know? You, yeah, I mean, you understand. And again, I'm, I'm going to I'll phrase this in certain ways that I mean. Uh, well, <laughs> it, here's the thing: there's it, it's one thing to say, and this is what what bothers me so much about affirmative action um, and these kind of the alleged diversity uh, initiatives as they're practiced uh, in, in higher education and other places is that there is the sense of here's the club, right? And, and we in the club will decide who gets into the club. Um, we will, uh, we will magnanimously um, allow uh, these minorities in the club because, you know, they were discriminated against in the past, perhaps, uh, to the detriment of other minorities who are not in the club. Um, uh, and right. we're also going to make sure we and our children stay in the club. Exactly. And we're going to, to make sure that, that those who might displace us from the club um, are not in. Yeah. And I think that's what this case is all about. Yeah, that's the part of it that just galls me. Maybe that's just because, you know, coming from sort of a uh, a very solidly working working class kind of Midwestern background, that's just that sticks in my craw a little bit, you know. More than a little bit, as you can probably tell. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Uh well, let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk about Donald Trump's tax returns. Yes, they're back. All right, Jay. So this week, Chief Justice John Roberts issued an order staying the ruling of the D.C. Circuit that required the Treasury Department to turn over six years of Donald Trump's tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. And he, Roberts further ordered that the committee respond to this by November 10th. Now, this whole dispute began back in 2019 when the committee requested Trump's personal and business returns and in, in doing so citing a federal law that specifically allows the House Ways and Means Committee to obtain any return or return information. Now, the committee has stated that it wants the returns from, from the president. 
From any taxpayer. Yes, from any taxpayer. Really? That was, yes. I thought it, I thought nope, it was, I thought there was a carve-out nope, relating it's, to... It's from oh, any okay. taxpayer. My, yep. My okay. uh, but anyway, the committee said it wanted to return as part of its consideration of legislation involving how tax law should apply to a sitting president. Now, Trump's attorneys, they fought this request. They're arguing that there's no real legislative purpose here and that this is essentially a partisan witch hunt. Now, in a unanimous opinion by a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit, two of whom were Republican appointees, the appeals court rejected Trump's arguments. Uh, Judge Senatel wrote, the chairman has identified a legitimate legislative purpose that it requires information to accomplish. At this stage, it is not our place to delve deeper than this. The mere fact that individual members of Congress may have political motivations as well as legislative ones is of no moment. Now, this relates, though, to a 2020 case decided by the Supreme Court, Trump versus Mazars. It was a 7-2 decision with Thomas and Alito dissenting, in which Chief Justice Roberts, writing for majority, noted that disputes between the executive and legislative branches, they've traditionally been well worked out between those branches without judicial interference. And the court says, well, that's that's how we'd like this to happen, essentially. But they also found that, you know, there were important separation of powers issues that hadn't been sufficiently considered by lower courts in that case. But even so, they didn't accept Trump's attorney's argument that there must be a demonstrated specific need for documents. They said that's too stringent, but they also rejected Congress's argument that all you need is a valid legislative purpose as to lenient. So what they did, as the court is sometimes want to do, is they came up with their own test four parts, uh, the first being whether the legislative purpose requires the president's documents or if that information can be gotten elsewhere. Number two, whether the subpoena is as narrow as possible for that legislative purpose. Number three, whether Congress has demonstrated that they have a valid legislative purpose. And finally, the consideration of the burden that providing the evidence puts on the president. Now, the D.C. Circuit did consider this, that, and they applied what they termed, they called it the heightened Mazar standard, and they found that the House Ways and Means Committee's request did meet that standard. So now, the, again, the Supreme Court has not ruled on this. This was just simply an administrative stay by Chief Justice Roberts. So given all that background, which I think was important to kind of bring in, do you think that the Chief Justice was correct in issuing the stay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you can you explain um, why? Sure. Well, well, this goes to sort of the, the the question we were talking about on other Trump privilege issues is on on these kind of things. Uh, it's a bell that can't be unrung. Uh, and if this is something that um, uh, there are significant um, uh, separation of powers questions, then the whole court ought to hear it and yeah, get a decision, and they can decide whether or not this fits in with the Mazar test. Um, and this just sort of gives that allows us that time to happen um so yeah i'm i'm um i i think that's that's the right thing. and again with these orders you don't get a get an opinion with them right this yeah. is just a hey yes we're staying it um so i i look at it also as kind of it's a no harm no foul right um uh it's just a matter of uh well the um at what point does the uh, the house uh, uh 
committee get the, this information if they get it. Yeah, and that, that uh, I think so, is the bigger, the, the political question. There are certainly some who say, well, this is the conservative Supreme Court uh, hoping to run out the clock because, of course, as almost certainly is going to happen, Republicans will at least take control of the House. And so early January, which is not that far off in, in legal terms, right, certainly in yeah. litigation terms, that means that request will be dropped. And so then the thinking is, well, as long as Trump's attorneys with an assist from the Supreme Court can delay this until January, just, you know, like uh, a few more months, then it will all go away. Trump will never have to show his tax returns. And I mean, what do you think about, I guess, what do you think about the likelihood of that? I mean, I feel like Robert certainly set probably as as short a period as he could, I think, for the response from the committee. But do you think there's that this is going to play out before the uh, before the, the next Congress uh, sits or, or not? And I do you think probably. Yeah. OK. Do you think it would be a problem? Uh, again, if I, I don't know what their timetables are, but um, and I think regardless, um, you know, this this question is going to come up or related questions are going to come up um, uh, and already have. Right. For, for example, the, like the Lindsey Graham uh, subpoena in Georgia. And there was mm-hmm. a stay on that initially. Uh, and the court looked at it and said, no, he can go ahead and, and testify. Um, so I I think that's the, the appropriate appropriate posture to take, right? Uh, again, because once if, if these are separation of powers or federalism questions, as, as it was in, in Lindsey Graham, um, uh, you, you ought not to just sort of shoot from the hip. And if, you know, if these are questions the Supreme Court should look at, uh, let's give them the opportunity to do that. So can, can you explain to folks wh- what exactly or is potentially happens at this point? So Roberts issues the stay. He says to the committee, get back to me, get back to us by November 10th. They do that. And then what exactly? At that point, then I, I'm, I'm not positive exactly what happens because I, I, I don't have that many um, <laughs> stays pending before Justice yeah, Roberts. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that then the, the court looks at it. Uh, the um, uh, my guess is it, it went to Roberts because he's the judge for the DC, DC Circuit. Circuit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and then, uh, like Thomas was the judge for the Eleventh uh, Circuit, I believe. Um, uh, so then it, it goes to uh, uh, the rest of the court. I'm assuming he would do that, and they would look at it on the shadow docket, uh, uh, which again is not really that shadowy. It's it's just it's the emergency docket, uh, and they they'd issue a ruling. Um, so, yeah, my sense is that can happen fairly quickly. Yeah, it so, it, it, it seems to me that that's why it's that's why it's shadowy, yeah, right? Yeah, that's the whole point yeah. of the yeah. Well, it, it seems to me that this is a sort of a unique case because, of course, there is a specific federal law, and in many document requests, that's not the case. It's it's rare that it's rare that Congress passes a, a law that says this specific committee can request these documents, right? I mean, yeah. it's but that's but, that's the bigger problem. Yeah, yeah. But but it seems to me that the the facts and and the law in question is clear enough here where there should be nothing to prevent the Supreme Court for issuing a ruling one way or another before January. And if the court and just Chief Justice Roberts is concerned about the legitimacy of the court as it claims to be, then they should issue a ruling one way or another in enough time so that if they do, in fact, rule that those 
those tax returns must be turned over, that the issue, the ruling is issued in enough time so that those ter- those tax returns will in fact be turned over. Yeah. So, yeah. but you know, I, I I guess there's a larger issue here, and of course I am a I am a Democrat, and, and I am looking at. Uh, uh, you know, uh, a Congress in, in, in a few months with Jim Jordan, the chair of the uh, oversight committee. And uh, I got to say that, uh, wow. Uh, so I'm thinking about all the document requests, demands and subpoenas that will most assuredly be coming. And of course, I think we should even just for nothing else, but for political reasons, right? If you're just a, a pure partisan, you have to say, what does this mean? Be careful what you wish for, right? Because, yeah. I mean, there are, I think the court was right in Mazars to identify that there are certain important separation of powers issues. And, you know, uh, this is, this could easily come back to bite liberals, uh, progressives who are desperate to see Trump's tax returns, depending on how the, depending on how an opinion is written, of course, because like I said, this is a somewhat yeah. different case. But if the court kind of issues, issues a ruling that says, well, yeah, Congress can basically do that whenever it has a kind of a reasonable legislative purpose. Well, you know, that opens the door to an awful lot of stuff. And that could be given our current political environment, that could be uh, pretty rough, I think. And I'm, oh, yeah. a, I'm a yeah. little apprehensive about that. Yeah. Well, so, and I would say, again, the, the fact that this is a statute maybe makes it a little more more blatant yeah. of a of a certain and because it's aimed at, at sort of the individual executive. Right. It's not, um, uh, you know, does Congress have oversight over the Justice Department to to subpoena records from the FBI? Well, sure. Uh, again, then there's limits, uh, obviously, on, on that um, about what can be disclosed and ongoing investigations and all that. But um the the idea of of agency oversight, right, or oversight over over other branches of, of government or, or or agencies of the executive, as opposed to the executive himself. Yeah, uh, I think you can draw a distinction there. Yeah. So, any any thoughts as to how you expect this to play out this this particular case? Hmm. I haven't really thought it through a whole lot. Um, I I could I could easily see the court saying uh, uh, that yeah that they can uh, get the the records the tax records, um, or maybe you know sort of look you need a better showing to get the tax records you can get them but you've got to you've got to connect the dots uh, to your legislative purpose a little better than what you've done so far um, because this for all the world looks like you're just trying to get Donald Trump um, you know which which they are. Um, so I, I think I, I could see that kind of a, you know, that I, kind of a, and I wonder, you know, cause of course, if Congress wants, it can pass legislation requiring that presidents, presidential candidates release tax returns. Uh, in fact, uh, this was proposed a couple of years ago as part of the yeah. kind of everything in the kitchen sink HR one didn't go anywhere. Yeah. I'm not sure that it can, but go ahead. Well, 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 yeah, yeah, I guess you think the separation of powers issues might, uh, might make that problematic then. Yeah, I, I would say that the Constitution uh, sets the qualifications for president and uh, Congress cannot add nor subtract from them. So then I guess you could say that maybe that political parties could require that their candidates 
release tax returns. And that's not that that kind of skirts that. But it's not like the Republican Party would do that necessarily. Mm, maybe, may, maybe. Let me think on that. I'd that's, have to think on that. One a little bit. But I see what you're saying. That's um, the, you know, in the end, though, honestly, I don't think it matters politically a whole lot because most everybody does release them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so this is kind of a Donald. Now, maybe that will stop happening. But Donald Trump is a, in so many ways a unique case. And so, but even if Donald Trump released his tax returns and there was, it's not like there's going to be a line saying, oh, this is the, this is the bribes I paid to X or here's my reported income from Vladimir Putin or something like that. I mean, you know, so anything can, any of this stuff would be spun enough so that it wouldn't affect him politically. So I think, you know, I don't see it mattering uh, uh, necessarily a whole lot politically, but uh, I certainly will be interested in seeing how this, how this plays out or if it plays out before. For Republicans take over in January. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I said I, I, I was. It would have been great to have Trey talk about this story. He's still, uh, still recovering. And Trey, we hope if you're listening to this, we uh, hope to have you back soon. But take your time and uh, best wishes for a speedy recovery. Uh, but. Elon Musk finally got what he wanted, Jay. <laughs> you know, yeah. said, be careful what you wish Bird for, right? Free. More than yeah. a little buyer's remorse, right? Because world's richest man now owns Twitter, which he acquired for $44 billion, the price he admits is inflated. My first thought on that, Jay, is maybe that's what you get when you think it'll be a fun goof to make an offer that you can put a 420 in, you kind of a call out to the, right. you know <laughs> I mean? I, I did a little math, and if he would have offered 54 a share instead of 54.20 a share and had been accepted. He could have shaved yeah. more than around half a billion dollars off of that. But I guess, you know, what's half a billion dollars here? When you're the world's richest man. You know, yeah, 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 it's just pocket. But anyway. That's the luxury. Yeah, anyway. So Musk has to figure out now, right, how we can implement what he's wanted, a less restrictive content moderation policy and make the company, the company profitable. Uh, so part of that, well, let's lay off half the staff. He's well at work on that um, in typical Muskian, Muskian sort of fashion. Um, and uh, just a couple of days ago, right, he tweeted that Twitter was experiencing what he called a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation. And we did everything we could to appease the activist. Extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. <laughs> so uh, well, ad, ad, now ad sales account for over 90 percent of Twitter's revenue. So Musk definitely has a strong interest in ensuring that this advertiser pause doesn't become an advertiser flight. Um, and he, he understands that right in a previous tweet to advertisers, he wrote, Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape or anything could be said with no consequences, exclamation point, because that's what you do. Um, Twitter aspires to be the most respected advertising platform in the world that strengthens your brand and grows your enterprise. Um, now, Musk, who has previously said he would allow Donald Trump back on the platform, also said it would take weeks before Twitter could come up with a policy for reinstating any banned or suspended users. But it seems likely that there's going to be a home on Twitter for Donald Trump in plenty of time for him to use as a platform for his soon to be announced 2024 presidential run, assuming he wants to leave the comfy confines of Truth Social and come back to Twitter. So, Jay, there's a lot here. What do you think about all of this? Um, well, you know, that's, uh, that's a broad question. Yeah, um, I know. It's kind of like, what do you, what do you, what do you think of the Roman Empire? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, but- uh, so I, look, I, I think, uh, Twitter will be better off, um, uh, at least, uh, 
in terms of, of serving the, the idea that it's supposed to be a, a, you know, allow people to say what they want. And, uh, um, with, with Musk in charge, I think it will get, uh, more, uh, that it w- that will alleviate some of the right wing paranoia. Uh, some of it, some of it deserved just because they're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Um, uh, sense that, that big tech is, is, is shutting down their speech. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, it'll, it'll settle out. It'll sort itself out between advertisers and, uh, uh, people going on there. Advertisers will figure out if they're getting banged for their buck, um, by advertising and, uh, some will stay, some will go. Um, and there, there you go. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree certainly, but, but I think this whole, I mean, well, I can understand the point of view of advertisers because uh, Elon Musk is a volatile guy. He's an unpredictable yeah. guy. He's never been in a business like this where he's had to worry about advertisers. He said he hates advertising and, you know, Tesla, SpaceX, all very different sort of things. And so if I'm an advertiser and I have this sort of wild card sort of person jump in with saying all this and all, by the way, this week I'll tweet, uh, you know, some sort of a conspiracy theory about the attack on Pelosi. Uh, if I'm P&G or whatever, any other big advertiser, I like, you know what, maybe we take a break for a little bit and kind of yeah. wait to see how this plays out. But this whole, oh my God, Elon Musk clutching his pearls and this is an attack on free speech. Get a Give me a break. Uh, Jesus. Well, well, though, I mean, I, I don't think you can deny, though, that there is this, um, the the whole freak out uh, that the left had when Elon Musk said, I think I'd like to buy Twitter, um, sort of gave away the game, right? Um, that that the idea is, oh, my God, people might people might be able to say what they want uh, without being properly monitored. No, no, that, that, that's, that's, uh, let me that was, stop you there, because that's, that's a mischaracterization of why people on the left were freaked out about it. The people on the left okay. were freaked out about it because they believe that there is an asymmetry in the amount, in the amount of misinformation, disinformation that is being spread on Twitter, and that asymmetry is being driven by far-right folks who are like Donald Trump, obviously, and that if you have somebody who is okay with that sort of thing, like Elon Musk has at least implied that he is to some folks, then that is a threat to democracy. And that's why people on the left are freaked out, not because they not because they're scared that people can say what they want. So I just wanted to that's care. Mm-hmm. I, that well, I mean, I, I guess I, I'm not seeing the, the distinction between um Again, one one man's uh, misinformation um, or today's misinformation is, uh, 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 you know, next week's uh, proven fact. And that's that's been a lot of the the problem. Right. Uh, With Twitter is is people who say who would say things like, look, I think the virus started in a lab in Wuhan. Uh, Oh, my God, that's misinformation. Well, until it's not, Um, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop is a fake. Um, that's misinformation or Hunter Biden's laptop is a, is a, yeah, is a, a a fake from, uh, foreign intelligence. Well, you know, uh, or I'm, I'm screwed up because Mike, I'm on the wrong day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) saying Mike Hunter Biden's laptop is real is misinformation. I I agree. Uh, There, there are distinctions. That's that's the problem. And and, and the government will always define misinformation uh, as what it it doesn't want to hear. So, but you would agree that there are just there are just instances where people are just telling lies, and that's yeah, that's different. Well, absolutely, yeah, yeah, right. And so I think but, that. Uh, but what you're going to do? I and, mean, I well, guess that the 
there are plenty of things you can do if you are, you know, if, I mean, if, if you don't like that, you can move to another platform, right? Or if you are the platform, you can, you know, choose uh, certain different content moderation strategies. Or if you're advertisers and you realize that a large group of users are not okay with that, you can take your advertising dollars elsewhere. Right. Right. Uh, but all these, uh, yeah. And I, I think that's, 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 uh, Fine, I guess, but um, but I think there are these people. The idea, who the idea, the idea couch- though, is is not is is to is to pressure someone into content moderation, right? And that's the that's what I think is the problem. Why is that a problem? I guess I, I'm I'm trying to understand why that's a problem. Well, because because if you if you look to the there's there's no content moderation clause in the First Amendment. But uh, Twitter is and, not a. Twitter is a is a is a private private company. Does do do advertisers mm. do they have some sort of a right? Do they have some sort of an obligation to spend money on Twitter to support Twitter? I mean, if you well, want to no if you want to nationalize Twitter, course, that's a different conversation. We can have that conversation. But okay. Well, we should, and, and at some point, as as the emails come out between some of these tech platforms and the U.S. government, uh, I think we will. But. Um, the the idea that uh, it, it's one thing to say, uh, listen, I think this guy's lying. I think he's he's full of it. Uh, this is nonsense. It's dis- disinformation. It's quite another bigger step to say, uh, I want to make sure that no one hears this because it's disinformation. Now, now, look, you can say, look, that's not guaranteed by the First Amendment, and he's a private actor and all that, and we'll set set aside any um, uh, you know dalliance with the the state that, that might have gone on with this. Uh, but there's still this this core fundamental Western idea, right? That that people should be able to say what they want, even if uh, it's it's absolute bullshit. Uh, that's that's part of our our Western canon. Um, yeah, but they uh, don't have the right to obviously for things like libel and stuff like that. But 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 no, I would say yes and no. And the yes is you're absolutely right. If you want to go on, on the street corner and you know spew your garbage you can certainly do that but you don't have a right to space in the newspaper or, or online or anything like that that's you don't have a right to uh someone else's platform to do that if it's my platform i get to say who wants to be on it and that's a whole different issue and that's why it just burns me up these people saying it's a first amendment issue when hey this is a this is not a public sphere this is a private platform if you don't like it hey there's true social on the left if you don't like it there's mastodon apparently and some other things but that wrapping yourself in the first amendment i just think that's just that's just ridiculous no, no fair enough and let's and we'll we'll put the first amendment state action piece we'll we'll hold that in the band okay right? okay uh but but let's let's call it a a free speech issue that if if you are a a you know what you're saying setting say that you want to do is allow people to say what they want and speak their mind and so forth, um, uh, in in however many characters or less, uh, and then you're going to say but um, only certain people and we're going to decide who's who and and you're also pretending that you are sort of even handed about it and and there's uh, suspicions that you're not being even handed about it. Um, that all leads to the again the sense of paranoia um, that that people have that the 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 tech is is censoring conservatives. 
Right. And I think on the left, the argument is, well, if if more conservatives are being banned through these content moderation policies, because there are more conservatives, extremists who are do who are violating these these neutral rules. And so the problem isn't the rules, yeah, but, but they the can problem is conservative extremism. Rules. What's that? Yeah. The, pro- the problem is when when pushed to, they can never really come up with what those neutral rules are. I mean, I, I think that uh, in a lot of these various court no, cases, I think, I think the, the content moderation was, was settled, right? What's that? Go ahead. Sorry. The, the one that the one that was uh, settled uh, where you did have emails from the White House. Um, uh, I mean, I think that's <laughs> that's sort of a, a, a problem. But the the idea here, here's the weird thing about this, right? Conservatives and I'm speaking generally, right? I'm, I suppose I'm just speaking of my tribe of the classically liberal um, uh, conservative right. uh, tradition. You guys have could probably no, meet in the no, booth at no Denny's sense, right now, but anyway, go ahead. Have, yeah, have no have no sense that, uh, or have never really believed that. Oh my gosh, we need to have content moderation um, of of uh, the New York Times or of of Facebook or Twitter, right? There, it, now Josh Hawley, I suppose, would be the exception, but I don't count him. Uh, Ron in, DeSantis, in my tribe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, you're, you're, uh, okay, yeah. Not your and, and the 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 idea was, and this is what um, I want to say: is it is it Holmes who said this? Uh, uh, that look, the remedy for uh, bad speech or wrong speech is more speech, and that's been the the sense that we've always you know been brought up to. Look, if someone says if someone's saying something that's that's untrue, well, okay, call them out on it. God, I think that's so naive. Uh, that's the that's, better, that's that's better so, for society. I think as, that as is opposed just, to shut them up. I think that's so naive. I, uh, but I, I, I don't. Well, I don't disagree with it in total. But I think that it's it's based on certain uh, 18th and 19th conceptions, uh, conceptions of of media and the world and technology that no longer obtain today. So it would be nice if it would be nice if that were true. But it's 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 not anymore. Unfortunately, I don't say. Well, I'm not saying this- I have a better solution. But that this idea that the that the, the answer to bad, the incorrect speech or, or wrong speech or lies or more speech is, I just think it's it's more what Steve Bannon famously said a few years ago, right? Flood the zone with shit, and that's what you get. <laughs> you, just get you just get shit flooded with more. Yeah, anyway, but that's so let's let's do a, just a, a quick hypothetical, sure. though, and and say um, that a year or so ago, year and a half ago. Uh, when when we're fighting over school closures, people who would, who said, "Listen, there's very little risk of the virus to children spreading. Schools should be open." Um, and and then there was the response of, uh, "Shut up! It's a pandemic." Uh, those those were the types of people p- people who were then labeled vi- you know vaccine deniers or COVID deniers or whatever, who were removed from Twitter. Um, it turns out they were right. Wouldn't we have been? Would we have been better off? Uh, had that conversation taken place and the first, the, you know, whatever proponent says, listen, school should be open because here's the science that says, um, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, not particularly harmful to, to kids, uh, less transmissible and, and so forth. Um, and had that conversation as opposed to the shut up your band. Uh, I'm thinking also of like the, the scientists who signed the, the Great Barrington doc, um, uh, letter, right, early on in, in COVID about this is how we ought to be handling it. Uh, I think you could make the big argument that a lot of them were right. Um, but what happened was there wasn't the debate. There was the, uh, you're a conspiracy theorist, shut up your band. 
Well, and that, I think, I think that, that's, that's a different issue. I think you see it as being a more clear cut than I do. But that putting that aside, to me, the fundamental issue is, is fundamental issue is does Twitter, uh, can Twitter be forced to be the forum for that conversation? Well, if it wants, if it opens itself up to say, hi, we're here to let you show up and talk about important social issues. And that's the value we provide to advertisers and, and to the end users. Um, then, yeah, I think so. They can be forced. And, and I, I would agree. It's not it's not a constitutional question in and of itself, unless there shows there's some connection with the government. But um, I, I think it's still a. a yeah, see, I, I think uh, I think Twitter gets issue. Twitter gets to decide what its content moderation policies are and how those how those policies uh, are interpreted. Now, what Twitter can't do is selectively enforce them. That's a different issue, certainly. And that, but yeah. in terms of how they're interpreted, which is a much broader thing, right, then. And that's that's up to them. And so maybe that's some people might say, well, maybe that's too fine of a distinction. I don't think so. But I admit that it can be a distinction that is difficult, that may be difficult to make. And and certainly there are people who have been banned, who have you know taken legal action. You know, and that's I certainly you know, they have a right to do that. This is just like a weird and, and I'm sorry, because I know we're running short on time. But this is just something of, on on the the idea, because I, I get where you're you're coming from and where the left is coming from of the. Uh, well, we don't want uh, one side or the other just to um, uh, flood the zone with shit. Bannon's phrase, yeah, yeah, fill the zone with shit. Um, I, I guess why why do you have such a strong reaction to that? Whereas I, as a conservative, um, see the zone filled with shit all the time, and I'm like, well, there it is. You know, what I mean, I, I guess I. And, I think, and again, you can say that's because I'm I'm extraordinary and I have the uh, mental capacity to separate uh, the good from the bad. Uh, yeah, you joke about that, but, but yeah, that's exactly it. You joke about it, but but no, seriously, that is that is absolutely it. I think you routinely and tragically uh, underestimate the extent to which people and the number stupid everyone else is well no no i won't say stupid because you know people have lives to live you know that they're they're not enmeshed in this they don't have that they weren't fortunate enough to have the educational opportunities and the freedom in a lot of ways in their lives that that you and i have been fortunate enough to have and, and a lot of the listeners to this to this show it's by the fact that they're listening to it suggests that they're you know uh probably part of that group so yeah absolutely and and that's that's my concern not that people are stupid uh and certainly there are you know, there, sure there are plenty of stupid people not right? saying that there aren't yeah. right but not our listeners but that's yeah. not the bigger problem the bigger problem is just just human psychology being what it is and the demands of life being what they are, there's going to be, I think, a much larger group of people who are subject to that kind of manipulation, I think, to a greater extent that that you and, and a lot of, I would say, you know, folks, the libertarian movement, particularly not that you're a libertarian, but you get what I'm saying here. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, believe. So that that's, I think, where we where, where we differ on that. Yeah. 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 So. So, yeah, I don't think people are necessarily dumber than you think they are. We probably agree about people's relative, you know, smartness, I guess. Well, I would I would close with with this, which was sort of a, this is sort of a 19th century summation um, of 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 that view. And and 
and that is Lincoln saying that you can fool some of the people all of the time and all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. Uh, and that that sort of comes forward that, look, sometimes people will get fooled. Sometimes some people will always get fooled. Uh, but in the end, there is sort of a wisdom of crowds uh, type thing that takes place, right? So I see. I I I just I mean I would say, well, you can fool enough of the people enough of the time to really really screw things up. Uh, so that was not part of Lincoln's thing, but uh, it doesn't matter what the you know doesn't matter what 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 all the, if all the people can or can't be fooled. All you really need is to fool enough people to you know go along with your uh, minimum winning coalition to get into power and do your worst, basically. Yeah, that doesn't really trip off the tongue. No, you know, it doesn't really. So, oh, well, Um, you know, we are running long, but I but because this is our last episode before the midterm elections, maybe some people be listening to this uh, uh, after the midterms, I expect. So do you have any final thoughts about the midterms just so we can get those in? Red tsunami. Um, uh, No, I I think it's I think it's going to be a good night for Republicans. Uh, across the board, I'm sticking with my Senate pickup of two. Yeah. I mean, to me, and, I'll, and the, the curiosity will be, and this may be a source of some tension, uh, it will be Pennsylvania counting votes. And will will votes uh, uh, not postmarked uh, be counted and so forth? Right. Yeah. And if it, so we, if it's we, close and yeah, comes to that, we may not know yeah, for for a while. And, you know, to me, it's I, I'll stick with my predictions. And again, to me, it, it's it's the fundamentals, uh, you know, from uh, some historical standard from 1938 to 2018. There have been six presidents with approval ratings in that 40 to 45 percent range where Joe Biden's hanging out right now. And in midterms, they've averaged a loss of four Senate seats and 36 House seats. Um, now, there's been some fairly wide variation in those six instances. But and the Senate seat obviously can vary just based on who's yeah, on the calendar. Yeah. But, but in general, you know, that's kind of in the in the range of what the latest forecasts seem to predict. And so uh, when in doubt, I always say, look at look at the record and go with the fundamentals. And the fundamentals suggest, as you pointed out, that it should be a pretty solid night for Republicans. And I would be I would be very surprised if it's anything but that. All right. Well, then that that brings us to the end of our episode. If you're listening, uh, thanks so much. Uh, If you're not, uh, I don't know what's going on here. Turn off your, turn off your phone. (laughs) If you're not listening. uh, Anyway, but if you're not already a supporter, hey, we hope you'll consider becoming one. Without supporters, we could not keep doing this week after week. And, you know, when you become a supporter, it's not just that warm glow of helping keep that uh, debate going, but it's also you get you know, free, uh, free, uh, ad-free versions of everything we put out. There's our supporter-exclusive midweek show. Jane and I are going to be doing that in just a minute. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, ESG investing, uh, ending the Electoral College, the supposed Supreme Court crisis. We got a lot. It should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. But anyway, you get all that. There's other stuff at various levels. Check it out. Go to patreon.com slash politics, guys. There's also our very active politics, guys, Discord group. Available to supporters on Venmo. You can support us. We're at Politics Guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of our support links are always in the show notes, as well as at politicsguys.com/support. But if you would like to get that midweek show, 
but you're just not in a position financially to support us, send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up with access to that midweek show. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you let other folks know about the show. And of course, the best way to do that in today's world is through social media. We'd appreciate that as well as subscribing and rating, reviewing the show on whatever podcast app you use. And finally, a special thanks to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. Jane, I'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.